the forecasting as a measurement, forecasting as did this work or did it not, as a much more quantitative way and, and objective way to judge. It's not just about how many leads did we get, how much traffic did we get. It's also, was this worth the time and investment? And should we do more of it? Should we change it? There's more sort of qualitative and directional decisions to be made there using this forecasting and, and quantitative type stuff that he talked about. Yeah. And it wasn't so much like financial forecasting. It was like, here's what we're going to be working on this. I think he did it by month, this month. Here's what we expect that to do. And then you go back and you measure how you did versus that. And then you can adjust your future work so that you can have a bit more predictable growth, hopefully, or efficiency in your business. This is the Customer Acquisition Show, the podcast that helps you turn complete strangers into repeat customers and grow your business. Hello and welcome to the Customer Acquisition Show. I am your host, Tom Meredith, the VP of Marketing here at Tier 11. And today we're joined for the very first time by our somewhat recent new head of enterprise sales, TJ Kelly. Welcome, TJ. Thanks, Tom. Nice to be uh, finally on the show. I've been watching a long time, seeing it on uh, YouTube and everything. Glad to be on. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And the thing we're talking about today is the Traffic and Conversion Summit, which is actually where we met in person for the first time. So did you find me to be shorter or taller than <laughs> I have what I like to call reverse Napoleon syndrome, which is I don't realize how tall I am. So I found you to be shorter than me, which was a surprise to me. I, I just assume everybody's going to be taller than me, and they're not. And that's always a surprise. So I don't know. not sure how to answer that exactly. <laughs> no, it's all good. Yeah, you were taller than I expected as well. So I feel like Napoleon. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. It's always funny when you meet people for the first time and you get to assess them compared to what you experienced them in Zoom. Like your eyes are so much bluer in person. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Ooh. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. So let's just hop straight into talking about traffic and conversion. This is, I think, both of our first times going. And what kind of expectations did you have going into the show? Yeah, I didn't have a lot to compare it to. So I kind of tried to go in with an open mind. I have been to inbound. I'm outside Boston, right? So here in the East Coast, it's easy to get to the inbound conference. And that's massive. I've been to a number of trade shows for different industries security and in travel and real estate and facilities, things like that. But I had never been to one that's quite so focused in types of marketing or the digital focus that the TCS has. So I don't know exactly what to expect. I've been following Ryan Dice for a long time. So I knew I was going to get great intel and great info from him and everybody that's kind of aligned. And I've been to trade shows in Vegas before, but never to this venue. There's always something new, new combination. So it was a smaller group that I think I, I kind of expected comparing it to inbound. I think what something like three or 4,000 folks. So certainly a really good size, a lot of people there. But he compared to the 20, 30,000, we were opposite CES, for example, in Vegas, which is massive, right? Tens of thousands of people. So by some comparisons, fairly small, but it also made it for an intimate room. You could sit there with 100 people in a breakout session and be right up front and only a couple of rows away and get great intel that way. So the expectations, it was a little bit of what I expected, a little bit of not, but I mean, it was great across the board. Yeah, pretty similar for me too. I thought maybe it was gonna be a little bit bigger, but (laughs) I know going into it, I thought it was gonna be a lot of not hacks so much, but like the latest tactics that were working. And we got quite a bit of that. A few different talks that I thought were really valuable, especially for us here at Tier 11 and some of the stuff that we're doing on the marketing side and could be doing going forward. So thinking of some of the different talks that we went to, were there any standout ones for you? So I'm glad you asked. And we chat a little bit before getting on here, right? I made a list. I've got 10 here with a bonus. 
Now, I can sort of rank and rate them, or of course, we can just chat through what we learned from each of these. But I think if there were two standouts, it would first be that there was a panel done with, I think, five or six different panelists there with Ryan Dice moderating and a number of the other digital marker folks you know, moderating the panel. And they had, I think, five minutes each, these panelists, just to, in blazing speed, run through their latest hack or tactic or tip that they had. Because it was so condensed, there was no fluff. It was just all detail, detail, detail. And they were really creative. So that one was really cool to see how widely varied, right? There was one about geo-targeting on Facebook, for example, which is kind of an older method, but it was brought back into the current. There was another one about snooping, if you will, on email addresses so that you can remarket via email in addition to remarket versus via display ads and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of great intel that way. And I like how quick hitting it all was and how much detail there was in there. Yeah, I think that was a wicked smart one. That was one of my favorite ones as well. And that's one of the things that we took away from is that geo-targeting. And one of the big things for us this year is like, really, how are we going to be marketing at different trade shows? So we're actually doing a test right now with the geo-targeting for the SHOT Show, which is very similar to our ICP at this show. It's mainly focused towards outdoors type manufacturers, actually in the same spot that we just left. Caesars Forum, where we were? Yeah, Caesars Forum and the Venetian. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that we were running that test. That's great to hear that. But also, I went and set up my own just to play with it, see if I could recreate the steps that we heard about while we were there. And it's great. So if I could, the way it works is basically, you know, we all know how the geotargeting is on Facebook specifically, right? You draw a circle around it, put a pin on the map, it gives you a radius, you can narrow that down to one mile. But the beautiful thing that this gentleman was recommending, and I have the name here, was, if I recall correctly, it was Dave Albano from Joe's of Marketing is the one who talked about this. So shout out to Dave for bringing this up. He set up a bunch of geo exclusions. So I have a one-mile radius, which might be too big for just Caesars Forum, for example. Though they're huge, they're not a mile in radius, these buildings. So set up maybe four points around that radius to exclude. In doing that, you can shrink the borders of the area you actually want to target. And then you just pay to get a video view awareness campaign, right, an engagement campaign. And so you're just put money on anybody who's sitting inside this building is going to view my video. And once they do actually view the video and engage with it, you can then remarket to them for a whole year after they leave that venue, as opposed to just the two days, four days, whatever the event might be, so you get a much more time to try to activate them, try to get in front of them. And so the combination of those two factors, I thought was really impressive. They're like specifying geotargeting down under a mile and getting them onto a one year long remarketing audience. You know, when you put those two together, it's pretty powerful. I was pretty impressed. Yeah, I was finding that the narrowing and the exclusions, I had to expand them slightly because it was too targeted. Yeah, It wasn't going to show because there was too narrow of an audience, but expanding them slightly, it still wasn't much beyond Caesars and Venetian. So right. we'll see how that goes and how the retargeting goes. And actually, I need to correct myself. It was Paul Pruitt from Adaptive Marketing, not Dave Albano. Dave had great intel too, but I don't want to... <laughs> I got to give credit where it's actually due. Right. What other talks really stood out for you? Yeah. So we, of course, were there to support Ralph and to see him and his talk, which was phenomenal. We could talk, I think, ad nauseum on that, which is a topic that we frequently discuss in the hallowed halls of Tier 11. So I think it is worth going over some of that. So with Ralph as the like, all right, let's almost close with him, right? The other beyond his talk, which he had a great time slot, he kicked it off first thing in the morning after the opening. But later in the evening, almost in the late afternoon of of day one, Chasm got up there and gave his talk. And he talked about how meta ads and Google ads can work together better than most people think and that the way they used to. And in fact, he called them enemies no more was the title of his talk, which I thought was fairly attention grabbing. And man, I thought he brought the house down. 
he almost was up there like a comedian or just a stage performer in addition to giving up valuable info, an incredible stage presence. But he talked a lot about how folks need to sort of update the definition of tracking, update the way we think about data and what this really all means. Of course, there's another thing we talk often about in Tier 11, but Cosm really brought it into the forefront. He had a great graphic where you know there's all these columns left to right of email and website and newsletter and Facebook ads and Google ads and all these other columns in which you would get in front of your audience. And then top to bottom was the journey that they would go on. Everybody thinks you start top left, and then you take this nice gentle slope down to bottom right to eventually becoming a customer. And you said, this is what you think your customer journey looks like. This is what it actually looks like. And on the next slide, it was the same columns and grid, but the dots were all over the place. And it was this absolutely chaotic mishmash of of dots. And he said, the truth is, we don't know. Nobody actually knows exactly what it's going to look like at any given point. So we need to think beyond exact tracking and think a little bit bigger picture, which I thought was a really great way to put it. He kind of zoomed out a little bit and talked about the MER stat, that marketing efficiency rating beyond just ROAS. Let's level up a little bit from ROAS and see what else goes into this. So I really liked his quite a bit. Yeah, I have maybe a slightly different take on Cosm's. He definitely was bringing a little bit of controversy with it too. He called out almost all of the different attribution tools out there. He did. Basically saying that attribution is a lie, which I know to be true, believe to be true, because there are so many touch points that there is no possible way to have accurate attribution for each of them. So I thought that was pretty interesting that he would go that direction. Yeah, he was not pulling any punches. I agree there. He had almost a disclaimer up on stage, right, where he said that he's an advisor to Northbeam, as I recall. And he said Northbeam is the worst attribution software out there, except for all the other ones which of course is a cheeky way of saying nobody can really do this 100%. Who knows better than the folks that are on the advisory boards directing the development of the software. And he's, you know, he's like, I'm complicit, right? I'm not exempt from this. We all need to sort of update our thinking here. Yeah, I'd say my favorite one is probably Lauren Petrullo. Mm. I thought she was really funny up there. And she comes at it from, I mean, if you've listened to Perpetual Traffic, you know she's a huge, I mean, that's all she does is Pinterest. Like She's a Pinterest agency. And really this idea that Pinterest can contribute so much to the traffic that you're generating, and it's an untapped platform with low competition. So she had a really great talk talking about the different ways that you can use Pinterest at a very low effort to drive long-term traffic to your website, which I thought was a really good chat. Yeah, I love hers as well. She was also hilarious. What did she say? She had the shittiest topic or a shittiest presentation, and then she flips to a animated GIF or whatever of Shit's Creek, the wildly successful TV show. And every slide had some reference, some GIF, some meme about Shit's Creek. So she's clearly an avid fan, clearly very entertaining. And she uses that vehicle, that entertainment value to convey top tier information. Interesting. She called her topic, I've got the name here, it says Pinterest Power Play. It says 450 million prospects that your competition is ignoring. So again, a compelling title, right? And especially if you can look at it and say, yeah, all right, I don't want to ignore them. I need to go after this sizable market. And she talked a lot about how Pinterest algorithm is designed to be different than really any other platform out there. This is a topic that was common when TikTok started making waves, how their algorithm, they said, okay, cool, you can follow anybody you want, but we know better. We're going to show you algorithmically the content that we know you want, regardless of who you decide to follow, right? Pinterest is almost the opposite, where it's designed, not in algorithmically opposite, but it's where it's designed to sort of take you off platform. Everybody else is trying to keep you on platform. And Pinterest, by design, wants to connect you to other content providers and publishers out there. The other thing she talked about is the longevity of posts on Pinterest. 
and how they have such a longer lifespan than you would get on any sort of feed-based social media network. With any other one, you'd be lucky to get a week's worth of value from a post, where on Pinterest, the longevity lasts basically months on end. That's right. Because they design the algorithm differently, yes, longevity is a big part of it. She named some stat, I don't remember it now, but you get minutes at best on most of the other feed-based platforms. And in Pinterest, you get weeks. It's just orders of magnitude more time where your content can still be featured at the top of the list, so to speak, not quite feed exactly, but similar in, in how you're in front of people and you're getting your content out there and you have a much longer time scale there. Yeah. All right. So we covered Lauren, Cosm, Wicked Smart. Yeah, there were a couple others on there that I think are, are honorable mentions. I didn't get to see all of them, you know, how these trade shows go and conferences. You can't go to everything, unfortunately. I did get to see Chris Mercer, I think, on day two. His brand, if I'm going to get the name right, I apologize, Mercer, but it's, I think, marketing measurement or measurement marketing. If I'm getting measurement the name marketing, right. yeah. He's all about the data. So it's almost in contrast to what Cosmos out there saying, except they come at this question from different angles, right? So I don't know everything about what Mercer and his company are doing, but I know that in his talk, he talked a lot about planning your marketing budgets, your marketing programs, your marketing plans, and how to predict accurately and intelligently what's going to work on a campaign. And it's a way that I hadn't ever thought of planning these things. He called it marketing math, I think, four magic numbers, he called it, to sell millions. So his was really interesting, very, very techie, very kind of in the weeds on the numbers and stuff, but really great. I liked it a lot. Yeah, me too. I'd classify it as being about forecasting. When I think about how that compared to some of the other ones, particularly Cosm's, Cosm was talking about like the reactionary nature of how marketers have worked in this era of performance marketing where you put something out there and see how it does. What Chris was kind of presenting was, well, you forecast how you expect it to do, and then you can judge based how something does. And that way it's a better feedback loop for your decision-making as you go through and work on trying to improve your marketing over the long term. Also, I got sick in Vegas and I'm yes. still with it like a, a week yeah, and a half. I came home congested and all of it. I feel like there's so many people out there, it's hard not to, right? I empathize with you. Yeah, the forecasting as a measurement, forecasting as did this work or did it not, as a much more quantitative way and, and objective way to judge. It's not just about how many leads did we get, how much traffic did we get. It's also, was this worth the time and investment? And should we do more of it? Should we change it? There's more sort of qualitative and directional decisions to be made there using this forecasting and, and quantitative type stuff that he talked about. Yeah, and it wasn't so much like financial forecasting. It was like, Here's what we're going to be working on this. I think you did it by month, this month. Here's what we expect that to do. And then you go back and you measure how you did versus that. And then you can adjust your future work so that you can have a bit more predictable growth, hopefully, or efficiency in your business. Yeah, this was great. With most of these, you know, they, they'll put up the QR code at the end on their last slide. And of course, you can see all the cell phones come up and everybody's activating the QR code. So, you know, I was right along with them. I did the same thing. Um, and so I definitely was interested to get on his follow-up. His email sequence follow-up has been great too. I joined his group, the like free version anyway, just to see what's going on and what else I can learn. His was great. What I wanted to ask you about, because I only caught the tail end, and I think you were in for the whole thing, was I think on the last day, Alicia conlin heard got up there and spoke about offers. She only caught the last couple of minutes. So she says, 2x to 10x your leads. And I think the title was Endless Leads, right? So because I missed it, I'd love to hear just what the beginning was like and what she took everybody through. Yeah, I mean, offers are close to my heart. So I was definitely gonna be there for that. And it's something that I think is often underrated and not worked on enough. And she really 
encouraged people to really look at their offers and improve them. And that thing that she says that we say and try to do, but it's always hard because it's not something that pays off right away is research doing so much research before you put your offers out there, really understanding who your audience is, what kind of offer is going to resonate with them. And it's really not just a singular offer. There's different offers for different steps in the funnel. And she went pretty deep into that, like how an offer for somebody who might be a colder audience is different than somebody who's been on your email list for a while. So I really enjoyed her chat about that. She got the main stage, which was interesting. Yeah. And deserved it. That was great info. In the last couple of minutes that I did catch of hers, she talked about one example. It was like, I think a a construction company or home builder company in Texas, if I recall. And they, through this research that you're talking about, figured out that the majority of the buying decisions for their ICP, the buying decisions are made by the wife in the family or by women in general. And construction and home buying, at least in her telling, was extremely male-dominated industry in who's providing the services, but also just sort of in the positioning that they were coming out with. And so they identified this opportunity if there's a way to resonate with the actual decision maker here in a unique way that other companies aren't doing. And the example I remember from hers was that she referenced to one of these buying Broadway or these type of reality real estate shows. Maybe it's on there. Maybe that's where it came from. I'm not sure. But I heard her say it, so I'm giving her the credit. She said something like, get a champagne caliber home or something like that. And just the imagery alone of using that type of a tagline is wildly different than what all the competitors were doing. And it clearly it's working again by her telling her company went from scratch, went from let's start a new project here to multi-million dollar recurring revenue in only two years. And so this offer, she's clearly onto something with focusing on the offers. Yeah, I think like most of us, she used offer on her business last. Like she was doing it for clients and then finally realized, oh, I can grow if I do this for myself. It's something we often find in doing research or even dealing with clients or marketers in general. You have these biases that you think you know who the target audience is going into something. And sometimes people skip the research thinking they know. But we find that the best outcomes come when you do the research because there's often things at the most basic level you can use your client's words in your marketing and to resonate with other similar people. But in the best cases, you find like these unique little pockets that are underserved because marketers haven't done the research into who's actually making the buying decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have not personally done any of that research and I would be very interested to see the results because yeah, there's bound to be undiscovered lessons out there, undiscovered as of yet for us anyway. I would love to hear what that turns up. I know she talked a lot about using Reddit for like seeing what people are saying about the industry in general or the products or competitive products. I think it was in one of the Wicked Smart talks, somebody's talking about going and just talking to your client success teams or your customer service teams, whatever CS means for you, and actually talking to the people who are talking to your customers to understand what their problems are, what their successes have been, and really understand what their language is. Yeah. It's interesting. I've I've heard the Reddit suggestion multiple times, especially in the like ideation topic creation what topics get searched upon Reddit. There's a whole keyword search tools that you can use that are not built on Google. They're built on Reddit. What are people searching for on Reddit and publishing about on Reddit? But I had not considered it in an offer build sort of a way. 
there's, there's some overlap there. There's some correlation between what people are searching and, and discussing on Reddit versus what offer would resonate with them. But there's still slightly different projects that you would need to come at differently. But it's a really good point that that is a very active source of people both sort of complaining and posting in the negative and airing their grievances, if you will. But it's also a great place for where people go to get help and, and will help each other and provide genuinely useful feedback. Both sides of that can be helpful in the keyword stuff and also, of course, in offers. Yeah. Similarly, I'd say I strongly suggest you have a tight feedback loop with your sales department because they're actually talking to the clients. And you know this, I'm always asking for recordings of your latest sales calls to see what people are asking about and talking about and seeing how we can work that into our messaging, but also our own offers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a little tier 11 mini victory this week where I had a phone call with Cameron. And as you noted, I'm fairly new to the tier 11 team. So I had not met Cameron on a call yet. And I said, hey, I've seen you on the customer acquisition show a bunch of times, but it's nice to actually get on with you in the same call. And he said, yeah, actually, likewise, I have listened to your sales calls before, but I have not met. So the recording of those calls is a source of intel. I see it as my job as sales lead around here to obviously get information out of the client's as best as we can, but also make sure that the questions that are being asked tie into what our production team is eventually going to need, tie into what CS will need, but tie into what marketing is talking about. How'd you find us? Is it the podcast? Oh, you were searching online. Okay. What led to the search? What were you searching about? Right? Is there any amount of intel? Just a couple of conversation starters with these prospects. Human nature, they're going to tell you all about it. Oh, yeah, I was looking for this. I was looking for that. You found you guys because there's usually some gold buried in there. And it's not hard to do just to get a simple conversation with these folks. That's a useful place to go digging for intel. Yeah. And for us, a great way to find the problems that people are dealing with, just put out content so they can start to understand it. And we don't have to like gate it, which is like, here, here's something you can start thinking about. Oh, it's too much work for you? Well, come over to tier 11. You know a guy, right? I know a guy. Yeah. Who's taller than me and bluer eyes than me. (laughs) (laughs) So I do have a couple of more I want to give more honorable mentions to if we have another minute here, Tom. The first one that comes to mind for me is going to be Christine Marie. And now you and I had the pleasure of meeting Christine Marie in person in addition to seeing her her talk. But her brand is, I think, Empathy Marketing, if I'm going to get the name right. The title of the talk is Embracing Empathy or Empathy Driven Marketing, which is the path to 800% ROAS. And in speaking with Christine, you can feel it in a conversation, whether that she absolutely lives and breathes this, but it's also a really unique way to position marketing. Almost the other end of the spectrum of what we got from Mercer with the data-driven, the deep dive, the numbers, extremely valuable, but so too is the empathy part, right? The human connection part that sometimes gets skipped in this industry. So credit to Christine Marie for bringing that one back up. And there's a lot of great intel there too. Yeah, I also liked Christine Marie's a lot. Ralph was talking about ACC, which was awareness, consideration, conversion, like how we're dealing with all those. But she had a different, more empathetic spin on ACC. I think she called it KCC, which was no communicate, convert, which was very much user-focused language versus marketer-focused language. It's always a good perspective to have to really think about the perspective of what your person you're interacting with is dealing with. Right. The no like, and trust model is fairly well established out there. It almost is a blending, I think, of no like, and trust with awareness, consideration, conversion. But while you need no like, and trust in order to win the conversion and earn the conversion, I agree that putting it into those terms, the KCC model that she's bringing to the world is a great way to look at it. And that part can be overlooked if you're not careful. So credit to her for bringing that back. And who is your other honorable mention? 
I also want to give Scott Cunningham a nod here. Scott runs Merchant Mastery up in Toronto, I think. And these folks are a Shopify agency. So if you've got a Shopify store and you're looking for some help, you're looking to level up to the next tier, you definitely have to check out what Merchant Mastery is doing. Scott and his team over there, Dawson, a few others, they are doing great work. They're a friendly agency that we do slightly different work. They're helping your Shopify store grow, which we can do, but they do it in a very different way. So it was great to be able to talk and hear how they go about this challenge for some Shopify store owners versus how we would. And to hear his talk, I mean, he's got incredible info. He had an example of, you would classify these folks as like a mom and pop startup selling, I think it was Italian dressing, right? Italian salad dressing on a Shopify store. I don't know of too many markets that are more competitive than the like shelf-stable food market and bottled drinks. And there's a few, maybe it's cosmetics. There are a few, but that's up there. And he was showing the results of how the store was able, and it's simple things for this example, things like an About Us origin story and reviews, you know, all the things you always hear about. But he had a formula that he put together that said, if you're going to put an offer page out on Shopify, you have to go through this step, this step, this step, this step. And once you've done those, that leads into these steps and that, and all of it sort of built on itself. And it was a remarkably simple formula that by the end of walking through these steps, you've got an extremely well-built, complete and thorough Shopify offer that made purchasing from that store much easier than it was without going through these steps. So credit to Scott and his team for the work they do and for the talk that he gave down there. Yeah, I think that was one of the few like shopping platform specific ones. I was surprised there was nothing about meta shops or TikTok shops. I know TikTok shops have been so big lately that nobody really had talks, which is surprising. There were tons of talks about AI. Did you go to any of those? I didn't do any of the AI ones. Dice called it out right at the opening keynote that AI is everywhere. There were a couple of AI mentions right in the algorithms and stuff. Cosm talked about the black box and so on, but I didn't go to any of the dedicated AI sessions, no. Yeah, similar for me. I feel like AI is going to be table stakes for all this stuff and I really built in. It seemed a little early to be trying to figure out specific ways to use LLMs early on. There's still some very fundamental things within marketing that the focus should be on and not necessarily on the AI stuff itself. What goes in here, if I could take a little bit of a left turn, as I was listening to one of the recent Ralph and Cosm episodes on perpetual traffic, where they talked about AI. And I don't remember if this was a recent conversation or a replay of an older one, to be honest. I think it might have been an older one because they were talking about like, hey, ChatGPT and Bard are here. What do we do with them? Which that conversation probably goes back a few months now. But Cosm had a really great point that I think bears repeating here, which is basically that what it does is whoever is using it, it makes that person more prolific and more efficient and more productive. And that can be a great thing in the hands of the most productive people in your business, but it could be somewhat destructive if you put it into the the hands of the wrong people or people who don't know how to use it yet, or people that have maybe a misguided idea. If all of a sudden they can amplify their contribution to the project, you want to make sure that amplification is a good one and is going in the right direction. And I hadn't considered how everyone kind of cautions about AI in general being something we need to be careful about or whatever, but also how it gets used by the human user is something we need to be careful about too. And I don't know if any of the sessions at TCS talked about that. Like I said, I didn't go to any AI ones, but it's an interesting point. Be careful with what you ask it to do. It can be a double-edged sword. I think AI is going to 10x everybody. Those that are excellent, it's going to 10x their excellence. Those that are right. not great, it's going to 10x that. And those yeah, that are they're, mediocre they're are going to be mediocre. Exactly. mediocre. <laughs> yep. I know there are a couple of headliners, kind of the usual suspects. We went to both Richard Branson and Damon John. Any takeaways from those? 
Damon John was a great story to hear how he built up the FUBU brand. And we even got to see an old video from, gosh, I don't know, in the early 90s, probably. He introducing some of his friends that he was building the business with. What I liked about Damon John is he talked a lot about a lot of his failures and how he had learned from them and always you know, bounce back. He talked about trying to start up, what was it, Keeping Up With The Kardashians, and he was trying to get them a particular clothing brand, and nobody knew who they were at the time. And so he said, for 75 grand, we can get these young up-and-comers wearing your brand on the show and everything, and folks turned it down. I don't know who this is. You know, I'm not paying 75 grand for, for nobody. And look at him now. Look at the turnaround that brand has made, the Kardashian brand, and what if you had been your logo on their clothing on all these episodes, what a difference that would have made. He said, but that wasn't him because he was with Kardashians already, but it's an example of how sometimes you get it wrong. Then maybe it's the instinct you're talking about. If there had been more research done, maybe you would have made a different decision there, but sometimes you get it wrong. He talked a lot about overcoming that, bouncing back from it and what you learned from it, which I thought was great. Very humanizing to hear him talk about those kind of things. Yeah. He had one example where he was talking about trying to get, I think it was FUBU on for some rapper to wear it. And instead of like directly asking that person to wear it, he had everybody around him start wearing it. It's really just branding and awareness, building that until somebody asked about it. And Yeah, in that example, I think he was talking specifically about the bouncers that would work at these clubs or they were like bodyguards around the artists. I think he said he had money to run like 50 shirts and that's all he could afford to print in the early, early days. So he said, what do I do if I have 50 to give them out and I need to be as impactful as possible? Who do I give them to? And so what he chose to do was print 4X sizing on these sweatshirts, 5X, these massive, massive shirts, and give them to the massive guys who were at the door to all these clubs and who were surrounding the artists, right, as bodyguards. I think if I recall, he said two years later, one of the artists that he had been going after asked the bodyguard, like, what is this shirt I always see you wearing? And he's like, oh, FUBU, you got to check him out. And that artist finally got involved and, and called him up or whatever it was. But it was clearly a very long game. But it was like, man, what a brilliant strategic move to go after not just those people surrounding to create awareness, but a specific target to go after who those folks are. So I thought that was, that was brilliant. It just shows why Damon is where he is. Yeah. And then the last one, maybe hit on Richard Branson. Any specific takeaways you have there? He was great. Obviously, it's awe-inspiring to hear somebody like him talk. I think he's got a net worth of something like $3 billion. So just like, all right, man, teach me. I want to do everything you do. He gave some really great examples of some marketing stunts. He was very much publicity generating. I want to be in the headlines. I want to be on the news type of uh, person. The example when British Airways was trying to put up, was it a Ferris wheel, I think, in London? Yeah. And they blimp up right on top of that. So as all the photographers are there for the Ferris wheel, the photographers are also seeing Virgin Airlines blimp, which was just genius. He drove a tank down, what, Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue or something right through Times Square in New York, which he called it out. He's like, listen, this is before 9-11. You would not be able to get away with that nowadays. But in the 80s, 90s, things were a little different. You didn't have social media. So if you were going to create buzz, you really needed to do that via newspapers and TV news. And so he clearly was a master at that. Yeah, I think that one backfired for him. He was pitching the Virgin Cola and he shot the tank at a, was it Coca-Cola sign? And then Coca-Cola comes back and threatens all the distributors for Virgin Cola saying, well, if you're going to carry Virgin, you're not going to carry Coke. And that basically yep. killed that whole business. Yep. So that one so, backfired. <laughs> be careful which fights you pick. <laughs> That's right. But I mean, look, we're still talking about it as a marketing example here, what, 30 years later almost, right? So while that business move might have cost them some short-term investment and Virgin Cola didn't fare well in Europe as a result, it was still a good move on at least some level. He talked about how he started a cruise line 
And I think it was something like November of 2019, December, it was like immediately before the global pandemic, he starts a, a cruise line. And at first he's hearing headlines about this COVID thing in January, February, and he's like, nah, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. And then he sees the, I think it was the Italian cruise and he was like, oh, right. And so they just brought the ship back to dock and said, leave it there. And he's like, there's another one. Luckily we were diversified enough to absorb the you know financial impact of that. But there's another lesson learned that you can't plan for everything. Yeah. And I think the cruise line is up and going now. Yeah, I think but it came back. Kids with you, so yeah. whatever. That's right, adults only. That's another genius move, right? His grandchildren made a funny video, of course, with their parents involved, complaining, Grandpa, why can't kids come on your cruise line? It was cute, it was funny. And then so the brand folks over at Virgin Cruise Line said, hey, good idea. And they turned that into a commercial, reshot it with actors and so on. But it, it's all kids complaining that they can't come along, which of course conveys the message to the parents. It's adults only, so if that's what you're looking for, like that was a really clever way to get that across. Yeah, I thought so too. Well, cool, TJ. I think we're kind of at the end of our time here. I'm sure we'll have you back many more times. I hope so. I hope so. Get you on perpetual traffic as well. But yeah. it was great meeting you in person and like really solidifying the marketing and sales relationship for Tier 11 and make sure that we have good communication and tight feedback loops so we can better serve our customers. That's right. Very good. Well, thanks for the invitation uh, to be on the show, Thomas. It's a blast. Uh, I look forward to doing this again. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, TJ. And if you are looking for a marketing agency to help you in 2024, head over to tier11.com and hit the big pink button. And we, TJ, not me, but TJ would love to chat with you. We have all of Ralph's slides from Traffic Conversion Summit over at tier11.com slash TCS2024. Or if you're on YouTube, you can scan this QR code and head over there. Well, for TJ, I'm Tom Meredith, and this is the Customer Acquisition Show. And until next time, see ya. Thanks for listening to the Customer Acquisition Show. Take the next step toward growing your customer base. Visit tier11.com and request your customized growth plan. And remember to hit the follow button so you can be notified of future episodes.